thing is, in an institution, you find very quickly that there are other rules that are hidden. And it's the genius, it's the dark genius of capitalism that it has its grip on the throat of evangelicalism. And yeah, it's a tragedy. Welcome to season three of the Shades of Hope podcast. These are frank conversations between two friends who are committed to the role of the church in the work of racial justice. These conversations will help you understand how Jesus's life and ministry were about justice for all people and will inspire you to actively engage in the work of reconciliation and justice wherever you find yourself. Well, welcome again to our listeners, Shades of Hope podcast. It's good to be here again, having conversations as my mentor and friend, Dr. Clarence Moore always says, sacred conversations around race. These are the conversations that the church should be happening. And we are so grateful for a format to be able to have these conversations, but also to bring in guests, new friends who are also thinking deeply and acting justly in the way of justice in our world and in the church. Dr. Moore, it's good to be with you again. How are you doing today? I am doing well and again, humbled by your terminology as your mentor. You are my brother Mm. and iron sharpens iron. And every time I talk with you and with our guests, I get better. I feel better Mm. as an African-American man in America. Spending time with you, Pastor Jeff, and I'm going to be especially blessed today by the young man we have with us today. (laughs) That's right. I am delighted to be able to introduce this gentleman to our podcast. Found him originally on a podcast that he does called Faith Improvised. Yeah. Faith Improvised is a fantastic monologue. There are not a lot of people that I want to listen to talk by themselves for longer than about seven minutes. (laughs) But I so enjoy listening to Dr. Tim Gombas as he ruminates on things that are important to him, things that he likes, and then things that are and should be important to those of us who are trying to live faithfully as witnesses of Jesus. Dr. Gombas joins us today. He is an author. He is a professor. He is a golfer and a Cubs fan, which will let him try Mm. to give us justification for that. But (laughs) the the two books that I've encountered him with, the one book that I've encountered him with is his book on leadership in the church, ministry in the church. It's called Power in Weakness. It's Paul's transformed vision for ministry. He does a great job at using Paul as an example of what leadership and ministry should look like in the church today. Wow! I'm going to let him give us a little bit more on himself, but Dr. Tim Gombas, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. This is really kind. Happy to be with you guys. Could you just give us a little bit of a bio, where you're at, what you're doing, and what you're excited about? Sure. Yeah, I live here in Grand Rapids. I just completed 10 years of seminary teaching. I taught undergrads for seven years before that. And I have three adult children, and they have all gone and grown on and are healthy folks. And yeah, I've been really privileged, I think, to have chased down a passion for most of my adult life, which is studying the New Testament, and have been really privileged to sort of fulfill the seminoid dream of having been able to do doctoral work and then Mm. to teach and then to write. It's been a real delight. I've loved it. I've loved every minute of it. And yep, grew up 
in the home of a devoted Cubs fan, my mom. And <laughs> my dad didn't care about sports at all. Like, he played sports, but he didn't care about following team sports. But I grew up loving the Cubs, and it's just a, it's a, a tragic love affair. <laughs> Occasional moments of delight, but these days it's, it's pretty rough. <laughs> it's almost metaphorical of the life that we live, right? Yeah. It's, it's just a slog through the mud and occasionally the sun comes out and we yep. celebrate and then we slog through the mud a little bit more. That's right. Yeah, a lot of hopelessness. I also failed to mention that you just released a commentary in one of our favorite commentary series, the Story of God commentary series, which is a super accessible series for pastors who need good scholarship and practical application. One of our good friends, Dr. Dennis Edwards, has the First Peter commentary in that series. And so I just wanted to also get that in there and highly recommend that if you're looking for good commentary material for practical sermon work, that is a great series. One of the things that I was excited about in having you on is just the way and the work that you do. And we were talking about this a little bit before we came on the air, but the lens through which you read the scriptures. And we were talking particularly about the Mark series and how you did that. And we asked the question, do you bring a social justice hermeneutic to your work and in especially the Mark work? And your response was just really helpful for us as we think about what it means to read the scriptures. So how did you approach your work in the Mark commentary series, not just from a lens of social justice, but as just reading the scriptures? Yeah, I started that project in somewhere maybe 2012 or so. Oh, wow. I was invited to do it and my seminary education in the Gospels was not very good, and I went to a very conservative seminary, and my New Testament professor was very, very interested in demonstrating the historicity of the Gospels and answering critical objections, and we mostly studied the Gospels to prove that each episode happened historically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. which I I found that I couldn't care about. I, I, I That just seemed, <laughs> why would I care about this? And what was compelling to me was about a little over 20 years ago, I learned about narrative criticism of the Gospels and began to read the Gospels as wholes, you know, as whole pieces, as whole narratives and stories that hang together and have a narrative coherence. And the first one that I sort of learned on was Mark, and I, it just came alive for me. I couldn't believe it. Hmm. And so my work on that commentary coincided with sort of digging deeper into matters of American history and America's history of being a racialized culture. Mm-hmm. And I say going deeper because I had sort of sort of been turned on to the conviction a little over 20 years ago in studying Paul that matters of social class, ethnicity, and gender are basically all he writes about. I mean, they're the the subjects of his major letters, and that drove me to some study. Mm -hmm. But about 10 years ago, the bottom fell out of that, and I just started to read far more widely. And Mm. so in reading Mark's gospel, I began to see that there's a reason that the Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter is the Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter. That's all about ethnicity and social class and gender right there. Yeah, You know, all of the descriptions of the various characters that Jesus greets and meets and speaks to and encounters, all the descriptions radiate ethnic division, social class. And I came to see that Jesus's proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God, the arrival of this new realm over which he rules as Lord, is all about bringing together 
the various people that this corrupted world has divided. It has lifted up some, it has oppressed others, and the kingdom of God is a, a venue, a realm, a dynamic that is leveling us all out. Not mm. because of some liberal democratic value like equality, but because of siblingship. I mean, in God's new family, God's making us siblings and removing hierarchies. Mm. So to see all of that, it makes me realize that reading Mark in that way is what you would call just a straightforward reading. You're just seeing that that dynamic is on the page. Mm -hmm. And to read the gospel as if Jesus is not addressing any of those matters, and to read the New Testament or the prophets and Torah and the Psalms, <laughs> I mean, to read scripture as if none of those matters are up and running requires an alternative hermeneutic. You know, the slaveholder's hermeneutic or a hermeneutic of whiteness where, you know, none of those dynamics are allowed to have their say, but the New Testament writers wrote them in. So in coming to grips with Mark and then in doing a lot of deep reading, I began to see that these have got to be brought together and I've got to write about these routinely and regularly because they're not sort of a distant application of Mark. They are what Mark is talking about. Hmm. Wow. In fact, there's a publisher that came out recently, this is maybe four or five years ago, and a colleague of mine and I were laughing about it because it's called the Justice Bible. Mm. As if you've got to add it to it. <laughs> as if you right. couldn't find it in there. I mean, it's might right. as well call it the Bible Bible because yeah. that's the topic. <laughs> it's the topic of God setting right what is out of whack. Yeah. And you write extensively. I'll give your blog address and your faith improvised information in our show notes. One of the things that I appreciated in one of your articles, you said this, and I think this is another way of saying what you just said, but unpacking this a little bit would be really interesting. The robust gospel reality results in a Christian identity that sets us up perfectly, you emphasize perfectly, to engage discussions of race. So from your perspective, I don't want to presume you grew up similarly to how I grew up, but I grew up in Grand Rapids in a fairly conservative white space. Mm -hmm. And I was not set up perfectly to have conversations about race. I would not say that I was taught how to have an informed Christian identity. I was taught about how to have a sort of few things that I believed in that made it safe for me when I died. Yeah. So contrast maybe even the way that sometimes we talk about the gospel and the way that you intend that sentence to mean what the gospel is. Can you do one more thing for me, Pastor Jeff? Yes. Read that again. I want to add another sentence to one of Dr. Gumbus's articles. And I want the audience to hear this man who didn't just come on the scene after the killing of George Floyd. Yeah. But he's been marinating in this perspective for a while as a white male. That's what just encourages me so, but read that one more time for me. Yep. The robust gospel reality results in a Christian identity that sets us up perfectly to engage discussions of race. Then he writes, I am convinced that learning about race and racism and participating in discussions of these matters is an entirely hopeful, hopeful prospect mm. for white Christians. Yeah. I said, what? This is the white yeah. man? Hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Doc. Come on, explain this stuff to us. Help us out First here. of all, do you still believe these words that you've written? <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. And if so, please continue. There's been no repudiation. <laughs> yeah, I believe that more deeply now than ever. 
Oh boy, there's a lot there. I yeah. I came to realize maybe a little over 20 years ago, back in the late 90s, I just was struck so often by how it is being raised just like you were, Jeff, mm-hmm. with an individualized gospel of the good news about Jesus taking up residence in my heart and giving me an eternity in heaven. And then the pressure that was brought to bear to kind of change and be different and love our neighbor and all that, that was extra. That was either for super dedicated Christians or that was, you know, maybe don't pressure me to do that. That sounds like legalism. Right. Mm. I began to see on the pages of the New Testament my God. that that is simply, that it's not like, well, you can see how you get that. That's nowhere. Right. My area of study was the Apostle Paul and all I could see in all of his letters were exhortations about community. There was no information anywhere, really, about how to conduct an individualized sort of walk with Jesus or something like that. But it was all about God creating this one new community that together identified the ways that culture has corrupted our social behaviors and that as they learn together the gospel, they put on new behaviors and renewed behaviors that embody the gospel, that are like sort of gospel performances. And I just was struck by like, how did I, how did I not see this? And how was I not taught this? And then over the years, I've come to see how it is that, you know, as many other people have seen and as black writers have been saying for well over a century or more, you know, Lisa Bowens is brilliant on this. She's a New Testament scholar at Princeton and just brilliant. It's a brilliant work. Her book, African-American Readings of Paul, it is one of the more remarkable books I've read in the last couple of years. It's an absolute encyclopedia of Black writers and preachers on Paul's writings, and it's mm. it's amazing. Oh, really? It is a labor of love, and it's just so mind-blowing. Wow. Especially because of how, in the Black church tradition, how St. Paul has been regarded with some level of suspicion because of how Paul was presented to slaves, and she just does a wonderful job of showing how Paul meant so much to so many Black women and men who love the Lord and love the church and love justice and the justice that the gospel brings. So anyways, my dissertation, my doctoral work was on Ephesians, and I had to grapple with the powers and authorities there and who they are, uh, how they operate. And I came to see that they are like these cosmic ruler figures that are in rebellion against God. And the way that they manifest that is by overseeing the present evil age and corrupting its ideologies and inserting into it all sort of perverse ways of thinking and imagining and and seeing the world and behaving. And humanity is also to blame for walking in corrupt ways. But I was primed by Paul to see ideological corruptions and their social manifestations And so when I, this is probably about 17 years ago, I got involved in discussions of racial reconciliation. I've come to see since that that's maybe not the best term. (laughs) Yeah. But in discussions of race, I mean, I was just like, this is what Paul's talking about. Hmm. And it's just read right off the page. And what I came to see is that the project of being Christian in community is together identifying the ways that the present evil age and the powers that rule the present evil age have corrupted and hijacked our imaginations and coming to see those corruptions ever more clearly and then reckoning with the fact that we are an already liberated people from the present evil age and we've Mm -hmm. been brought into the new creation age in Christ and by the Spirit and 
leaning into that effectively involves picking up new practices and new ways of seeing and new ways of seeing God at work among us. And because the logic, the logic that is at work in the present evil age is the logic of death and violence and oppression and destruction, but the logic of the new creation age is hope and renewal. Yeah. The more that we participate in that realm by becoming closely identified with the cross and giving up our power and giving up our prestige and giving up our status to embrace others as siblings, the more we live in that realm, the more God pours out resurrection life upon us and the more he fires our hope in God's ultimate victory to come. So my project as a Christian is one that is communal, involves identifying the ways that I and we are held enslaved and formerly were held enslaved to the present evil age and leaning more fully into the dynamics of the new creation age. And what that does to me is it excites me to read feminist biblical scholars because they are all about identifying how power works in the social realm. Mm -hmm. And because power is a temptation and it will lock me into the present evil age and because the cross calls me to give up power, I want to know how they see things. <laughs> and that made me really excited to engage in discussions of race because it's like, okay, I want to know where have I been trained to read the Bible as a white man? Because what I want to be doing is reading the Bible as a disciple, as a cross-shaped individual, as a brother, wow. as a child of God. And I recognize fully that on one hand, I am and always will be a white man, but that's a label given to me in this fiction called the present evil age, but it's very real. It's very real. I'm not denying right. that it's real. So I, I am and always will be a white man. But according to Paul, I am a dead in Christ white man. And according to Paul, I'm an alive in Christ brother, son, child, mm -hmm. heir, along with all the, all the other ones who are there with me. Yeah. So that the more I can identify corruptions and take up those dynamics of renewal, the more hope is generated within me by God's spirit. So discussions of race are thoroughly shaped by hope. They generate hope. Wow. So the question I always had is, why are white people so defensive, so many white Christians so defensive when discussions of race come up? And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think one of the biggest ones, if I were to think theologically, is because many white Christians simply don't know who they are. They don't know who they are in a lot of ways. They don't know they're white. Most white people, they know they're white, but they don't know what it means to be white. Right. But they also White Christians don't know what it means to be Christian. Hmm. Many white Christians yeah. feel um, are made to feel guilty or they feel like they're being made to feel guilty. So they forget that they're already justified. They forget that hmm. they're already loved and embraced. It's over. There's no reason to feel guilt. Amen. They don't know that they are already adopted in Christ by God the Father. The battle for identity is over. This is not to establish that you're a bad person. This is about... <laughs> How do you take off the shackles of whiteness and lean fully into the kingdom of God? Yeah. And so I think that in many ways, those poor reactions, which generate fear and anxiety and all the rest, come from a misunderstanding of what it means to be Christian. Yeah. That's wow. not to say that I'm looking at all of these discussions for white people through rose-colored lenses. Mm -hmm. Because right. part of being Christian is to be involved in a lifelong process of repentance. Right. confession of sin, lament, yeah. truth speaking. And I mean, in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Mark, everywhere, certainly in Revelation, repentance is economic. It's political. 
It's mm-hmm. social. And so that means getting involved and imagining together difficult steps that will be costly. They'll hurt. Wow. To be associated with the cross is not a pleasant reality. Hmm. You know, it feels like ruggedness. It feels like slivers. So, yep. anyway. You know, I can imagine it in your world as a white theologian, oftentimes teaching courses in a homogeneous, predominantly white arena, that some of your thoughts concerning how you look at scripture can be controversial. Yet, I would think more young students are probably open to your hermeneutic. Boy, I would think that those that came before you and even some of your peers would think that you are uh, kind of bringing forth a social gospel. Yeah. One of the things that I've discovered is that, yeah, white evangelical culture, as it appears in institutions and in large churches and all the rest, it is the product of capitalism. It's the product of, mm. of whiteness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to say that that's by design. Absolutely. If you read uh, Matthew Avery Sutton's book, American Apocalypse, which is one of the leading, if not the authoritative history of American evangelicalism, he goes through how it is the early networks in the 1910s, 1920s, where denominational leaders were forming networks that would become what we know of as evangelicalism. Yeah. They were banding together, you know, increasing what we call now their platforms, all the rest. And they were trying to forge as many networks and connections as they could. And, you know, Orthodox, Christian, evangelical wasn't really a term yet, but Black church leaders, Black denomination leaders with the very same theology and outlook and, you know, mode of being Christian asked to join these networks. Mm -hmm. And they were turned away. They just said, go form your own. Wow. And what's interesting is Matthew Avery Sutton goes through the debates in magazines like Moody Monthly, which used to arrive at my house when I was growing up, mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, a couple of other evangelical publications, there were debates wow. over, you know, in, in letters to the editor and all that kind of stuff. There were debates over whether to include in these developing networks the KKK. Wow. Now, evangelical leaders decided that they did not want to do that, but this should be telling to you. There was debate over mm-hmm. whether to form alliances with the KKK. There was Absolutely. no debate over whether to include black Christians, black church denominations. So over the ensuing decades, evangelical leadership culture is thoroughly white and male. Evangelical language, ways of seeing are all built around having Jesus in your heart, but being given a free pass about loving your neighbor as yourself. So any efforts and early in the 20s and 30s, early in the 20th century, when there were Orthodox evangelical professors wanting to include a more robust, a holistic vision of what the New Testament teaches, it was given a dismissive label. That's the social gospel. And that's obviously wrong. We don't teach that. So yeah, unfortunately, that's become a negative term. It's a tragedy. But it's intentional, right? I mean, it's intentional. It's kind of like the way they demonize this fictional CRT and yeah. other things that people who are caught up in their white privilege create yeah. to whitewash, for lack of a better word, the truth mm-hmm. that should come forth. Mm-hmm. And you talked in one of your articles about how when people look at scripture, they don't see the husk of the gospel, but they peel it away, 
trying to find that spiritual kernel when what's glaring them in the face or what you're saying. I, I can imagine you saying that, boy, Peter and, I mean, Paul and, uh, and you mentioned Christ, you know, their hermeneutic was more about community and loving thy brother than anything else. Mm-hmm. And that has to be controversial in some white evangelical circles. Yeah, I've discovered that it is. <laughs> <laughs> A little dangerous as well. I've had uncomfortable experiences because, I'll say it this way, in classroom settings, when I'm able to help students to see this whole vision of scripture and then to make the move to today, they see it. Because we're talking about, this is what most of Torah is about. Mm -hmm. This is what most of the prophets are about. Mm -hmm. This is what Jesus was all about. This is what Paul was talking about. This is the Mm -hmm. topic of Revelation. So when you start to see it from scripture and then you take the turn to today, Classroom experiences for me have been largely positive and people have had their Mm -hmm. eyes opened. Mm -hmm. I guess I would say it this way. This is why I say evangelicalism is a product of capitalism. Donor bases of evangelical institutions are all rich white men. And so they've got power interests. And when they hear certain things and when they, you know, that you're here, you're talking about this and that topic, they get very uncomfortable. And when you make the rich folks who support these institutions are uncomfortable. Life can get uncomfortable for you. But to my mind, I want to be able to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And I've already realized that, yeah, that could be costly. Mm-hmm. But also what's interesting to me is that white evangelical culture I've discovered, it, it has built-in defense mechanisms against being confronted with these kinds of realities. And whenever it's poked it comes back with, well, that sounds liberal, or that's you sound like you're a Democrat, or that sounds like a social gospel, or you sound like a communist or a socialist or whatever. And I realize white evangelical culture has been shaped by fear and anxiety and self-protection because it's a culture driven by and, and organized by you know big leaders where there's a lot of money at stake in institutions. And so one of the things you, they have to do is consolidate and guarantee, they have to consolidate a constituency. That is people who will be loyal to that institution or to that figure or whatever. And the easiest way to do that is to draw clear rhetorical boundaries and identify who's clearly in and who is clearly out and who's dangerous and who you should listen to. So when you end up threatening those lines, you won't be around long. And would you throw power into that same sort of, so it's not just strictly an economic system, though it includes that, but then there's also the larger power systems at play that are, you know, intertwined, stacked, as Dominique Gilliard would say, on top of each other in terms of privilege. Yeah. I mean, Willie Jennings is brilliant on this in his book, The Christian Imagination, when he talks Mm -hmm. about the capitalist logics within colonial expansion Christianity, you know, when in the colonial project, The colonial project was the larger frame within which Christianity spread to the world. So that was a project of capitalism. It was, you know, going to foreign lands, extracting the value from there, exercising power over them. I mean, the power of the sword, you know, white Europeans went and slaughtered people in South America and India and in the Americas to take their stuff and then to sell it back to them at cheap rates and just had this endless centuries-long project of increasing the wealth of the West at the expense of the rest of the world. So Mm. power and economics and politics and race and all of that is wrapped up. And I think 
I think I agree at this point, although I'm not a theologian, I'm a biblical scholar, and I try to have a little deference about the rightness of my opinions, but I think, I think Willie Jennings is right to call the larger set of logics. Like he talks about capitalist logics. So there are all these dynamics that are at work to bring about systems of oppression. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. And capitalism is always wrapped up with racism and patriarchy. Yeah. And would you draw a pretty straight line from that satanic anti-Christ way of thinking to the crumbling of those very institutions as we see them falling down around us right now? Uh, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, so you got the SBC, oh. you've got all of these large yeah. evangelical institutions. I mean, you know, we've talked about a couple of them even before we got on here that are making their adjustments because they're either falling or they're feeling the sand under them start to shake. Yeah. Would it be driven back to that beginning where we said, mm-hmm. instead of Christ crucified, we came in with conquering white horse, sword in the hand in Revelation. Yeah. That's the vision we wanted. Yeah. And so now we're starting to reap what we sowed, yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah. In a sense, the institutions and the institutional power holders are starting to reap what they sowed. Yes. You know, Black Americans have been reaping what powerful institutions have sowed for centuries. Yeah. And people at the margins and women have been reaping what you know powerful white men have sowed. So, yeah, I think these institutions, with the changing economic situation and you know, geographic changes, cultural changes— institutions have been feeling the heat for some time now. And yeah, people are starting to speak up and say, hey, there's been deeply embedded injustices going on here. Yeah, to my mind, I don't see it as like, hey, these are gospel organizations and they're hiding injustice. It's like, these are actually institutions that are thoroughly shaped by injustice. Right. Absolutely. So we're just seeing the full flowering of that. Yeah, exactly. You know, And that's why I believe that many are fighting the truth to come forth. Mm-hmm. By banning books and yep. other kinds of of crazy thoughts, but for self preservation mm-hmm. and obfuscation, mm-hmm. anyway, trying to hide, trying to hide the truth of of our historicity mm-hmm. and the fact that, in the words of another great scholar we're reading, Robert Jones, talks about the fact that if the white church had said no to slavery, it would never have materialized. Mm-hmm. But they came alongside of the system and help propagate it. Mm-hmm. And it definitely historically, unfortunately, the church was a part of that degradation and that sinful exploit of people of African American descent mm-hmm. in that whole realm of, of called slavery. And the church was right in the center of it. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. Yeah, I think the heart of it for me is what you mentioned, Dr. Moore, when you talked about self preservation. Yeah. Because the church is a social reality that this is so nuts and radical and terrifying. But to think about what you did when you became Christian, when you were baptized and you identified with the death of Christ, that is a complete and total surrender of Mm self-preservation. Like I just gave up everything. I surrender all. I surrender all. Yeah. (laughs) And then what you begin doing in a lifelong of discipleship is learning what the heck you did when you did that. 
<laughs> and, and how painful it is. And, but at the same time, paradoxically, how hopeful it is and how joyful it is and how it's actually the way to live, the way yeah. you really experience life in this world. But the oh, thing man. is, Christian organizations, and here again, this is what I mean by the, the capitalist logics, institutions, so like colleges and schools and seminaries and all the rest, they are institutions of this world. They operate at the fundamental level, at the absolute baseline, is self-preservation. That's mm. the first and yeah. that's the final fundamental foundational value. So those kinds of institutions, at the end of the day, if they get uncomfortable, they'll whack somebody. If they, yep. if that self-preservation is threatened, they will lash out. They yep. will find ways to, you know, obfuscate and deny and hire a PR firm. Oh my god! Because mm. you will be sacrificed before the institution is ever sacrificed. Like people are expendable, the institution is not expendable. So institutions cannot take the shape of the cross. They exist by getting paid. Wow. So mm. if you genuinely understand Christian identity as thoroughgoingly cruciform and you go into a Christian organization, there's almost no more threatening place to be because you think all the rhetoric is Christian here. I read the documents and it's yeah. like, mm -hmm. I used to do that with students like, or with colleagues that had questions that would get uncomfortable at stuff I was saying. I would just say, I'm just saying what the text here says. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to sort of have me as a Bible prof not talk about certain texts in class or whatever, tell me what parts are uncomfortable. But you hired me as a professor of Bible, so that's the stuff I'm going to talk about. Yeah. But the thing is, in an institution, you find very quickly that there are other rules that are hidden. And it's wow. the genius. It's the dark genius of capitalism that it has its grip on the throat of evangelicalism. And yeah, it's a tragedy, but it is. Yeah, Jake Cameron Carter wrote a great article after you might remember the big blow up. There was an editorial in Christianity Today that was calling on Donald Trump to resign. And yeah. so there was a big blow up. And yeah. Jake Cameron Carter, a great theologian, wrote an article, an editorial saying, because there was all this question about the future of evangelicalism and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. He wrote an article that said that this institution of whiteness, American evangelicalism, needs to die. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And wow. I completely agree. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, <laughs> we've been talking about Christian hope as well. That sounds institutionally like there's nothing to hope for. When you think about the course forward, let's just hypothetically say the institution of evangelicalism does fall. We know that the church, the gates of hell do not prevail against the people of God. How do you see this shaping and informing sort of this next iteration of what it means to be the church? Because honestly, we've institutionalized. We've adopted a lot of those capitalistic practices. We do find ourselves in places where we've got to survive. The light's got to get turned on. The heat's got to be on. So as you start to think about what happens next? What are some of the things that you get hopeful about? Um, and if you're not hopeful about anything. <laughs> yeah, there's not a whole lot of hope, actually. Well, I would say it this way. I would say that I'm really hopeful in struggling churches. One of the funny, crazy, crazy things that's going on in the Gospel of Mark is that the big crowds that Jesus draws, there's never one positive statement made about them, and there are a number of negative statements made about them. So big crowds mm -hmm. are a problem in the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> and white evangelicalism is a, a social reality. It's a culture built on generating big crowds. 
So where I find hope is there's a, uh, in the Episcopal Church that just wrote a book called The Church Cracked Open, and we discussed it at our church, I'm Episcopalian, over the spring. Dr. Stephanie Spillers. Yes, Spillers, yeah. The Church Cracked Open, yeah. That's right. It's a very beautiful and hopeful book because she talks about how for the Episcopal Church in America, the struggling character, you know, the loss of people over the last, you know, 50, 75 years, the struggle to kind of figure out its relevance in the coming days, all of that holds the seeds of great hope. Mm -hmm. Because if we are broken and we've kind of come to the end of where our, you know, the great money and the institutional power, where all that can take us, we might be in the perfect place to now be attentive to what the Spirit is directing us to in the future. So here in Grand Rapids, I'm part of a church called Grace Episcopal Church. We've had struggle over Mm -hmm. the last 15 years. And honestly, there's about 47 of us, you know, on a Sunday (laughs) morning. And I I could not be more hopeful in that little community Mm -hmm. because everybody has to jump in. There's a lot of sweetness that comes with that kind of brokenness. And there's genuine community. So for my historically white congregation in the wealthiest part of town, we're having all kinds of conversations about how do we move forward with all of this vision that has been cast for us. And there's not much left to defend. Mm. There's not a big staff. There's not institutional power, which I think is finally freeing us up for life to bubble up. Mm-hmm. The way I see white evangelicalism in America is it's sort of this amorphous culture that is embodied in megachurches, educational institutions, mission organizations, and that sort of thing. What I would love to see, what I think would be a hopeful exercise, is I would love to take you know, some church leaders, yeah, pastors and institutional leaders, and kind of have them confront this vision of how it is that they are captive to the spirit and the dynamics of the present age, and mm-hmm. they're not representing the kingdom of God and call for destruction and and talk about how they're not living in kingdom of God ways. And that would all just be set up. And then I would have them talk back. And what I would listen for is all of the statements that start with, yeah, but. Mm -hmm. Uh I see what you're saying, but we got to keep the lights on. I see what you're saying, but we have insurance policies. I see what you're saying, but we have mortgage payment. I see what you're saying, and really what they're doing is they're confessing that the Lord of the church is capitalism, is money. Uh-huh. It's like they're serving exactly right. mammon. Jesus, Jesus. And what I would want to do is yeah. then like just write those all up on a whiteboard and just say, all right, well, what if we got rid of the property or what if we gave up staff? What if we all went bivocational? What if we dispersed instead of gathering in one huge building? And just start coming up with alternative ways of embodying the cross-shaped person of Jesus in corporate environments, in the locations where we are at, I think what you'd find is a lot of disinterest. What you'd find is the same enthusiasm as you find in the Gospel of Mark, which at the beginning, great crowds. (laughs) At the end, Jesus dies alone. Where is everybody? Everybody Um, has abandoned him because who wants that? I mean, when Jesus talks about, when he tells Peter that he's going to the cross to die, Peter, one of the disciples, He's absolutely sold out in Mark chapter one, drops everything, follows Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then Jesus tells him the actual cross-oriented character of the gospel and Peter rebukes him. Like you've got it wrong. We're not doing that. (laughs) We're going to the nation's capital to put other people on crosses like they wanted to do on January 6th. We're not going to the nation's capital to die ourselves. Right. What kind of sense does that make? 
Mm-hmm. But yep. Yes. You made an interesting, I don't know what to call it, a statement or is it prophetic? Because I do think, Dr. Tim, that there are a group of pastors that are really struggling to survive in the environment of the evangelical church right now. Mm-hmm. Because they want to hear the Lord say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Mm-hmm. And many of them are leaving the ministry going to take other jobs anyway. But to be able to come back into a different design, a small environment under teachings like yours, to help them really begin to experience the true joy. You used the word the resurrection mm-hmm. in one of your articles. The resurrection of life by shedding all this other stuff that is ungodly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it could be a movement of freedom for so many who call themselves now ex-evangelicals mm-hmm. to be able to move, you know, something diametrically opposite than what they've been a part of. Large churches, budgets and mm-hmm. staff and all of that and putting on the, the show and mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. But really scratching all of that, going back to the basics mm-hmm. and having a place to go to get. Here we go again, Pastor Jeff. Mm-hmm. We need a seven-step program. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Some people can recover from the damage that so many have experienced in the church. Well, capitalism is addicting, yeah. right? I mean, you hit your train to it. You realize that yeah, there's absolutely. money to be made, there's fame to be had, there's power to be grabbed for. And that's why Jesus told us to watch out mm-hmm. because the thief is coming to steal, kill, and destroy. Mm-hmm. And we have oftentimes in evangelicalism slapped a fish on the thief and said, that's what we need right there. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the lie. Mm-hmm. And so I do love the idea of this thing crumbling because, again, we're resurrection people. When something dies, something can be reborn. Yeah, that's right. And so we need things to die on a regular basis so that there can Absolutely. be new things that are resurrected. I actually think if people would just read your book on Paul and the power of weakness, that there would be kind of a nice little roadmap there for how we could think alternatively about what it means to be the people of God together mm-hmm. in community, and we can image to the world that we live in a wow. different way of mm-hmm. being and thinking, right? Instead of just copying their way. I mean, we, oh, totally. there's nothing happening in an evangelical megachurch that people aren't doing Friday, Saturday nights, everywhere else yeah. under the same sort of premise, which is butts in the seats. Yeah. Capitalism offers us so many promises, and, and we have in the American church white America has been wedded to the American dream. And it's almost the case that all white Christianity is the prosperity gospel. It just is so (laughs) at a subtler level. Right. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. We haven't kind of pulled up all of the ways that American dreamism has infected our understanding of the gospel. But I find hope in smallness, in struggle, Mm -hmm. again, it's not what we would choose. We've been trained right. to see it as not preferable. It's antithetical. To yes. Us. Ministry is a career, all that kind of stuff. And ministry will bring me prestige. And these are all the things that Jesus and Paul rejected. Yep. And again, a plain reading of Paul. <laughs> I want to know Christ mm-hmm. with the power of the resurrection. And so to become like him mm-hmm. in his suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like we do the opposite of that. Yeah. The exact opposite is our strategy. We yeah. do not want to suffer. We do not want to be brought low. We do not want to be irrelevant. We do not want to be poor. Mm-hmm. And Paul lays it out there for us and says, this is how I achieve the resurrection. And the hope that I have in Christ is that I 
empty myself of everything. Totally. Absolutely. And it's good news mm-hmm. in a world that has the opposite narrative going along mm-hmm. and we can see the damage that it's causing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, if we could just have this little good news people somewhere that are doing the opposite, but it's just so hard. Yeah. America has been wired. America has been brilliantly constructed to sort of disallow the possibility of Christian faith. The thing is, it will always be found in marginalized communities, communities that are displaced or oppressed or been made to suffer. So there's a profound and wonderfully diverse Black church tradition in America. You know, there are, in my area, you, you might know this well, Jeff, but migrant farmers, migrant workers. So there's a, a massive Hispanic flourishing church here in West Michigan. It has to fly under the radar because of immigration issues and all that kind of stuff. But that's where you find in those kinds of places, the church. Again, uh, the way that America disciples us is to not see those people and those places and those possibilities. Wow. And to actually see them as the losers, right? Yes, totally. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. I want the staff. I want the big building. I want the big library and all that kind of stuff and a a great retirement at the end of all this. Yep. I can't help but think as we close out today, the story that Jesus told and everybody was on the edge of their seat until he told them who the good guy was, who the mm-hmm. the good Samaritan, mm-hmm. yep. which is so antithetical to the religious establishment. Yeah. And the ethnic other. The ethnic yeah. other. Go and be like the ethnic other. Yes. And what I see in you, Dr. Gumbas, is a Christ type trying to get us to see the truth of the Gospels. And it is people like you, as you've sacrificed a lot, and as you will probably continue to sacrifice, that will bring hope and a sense of restoration. And we pray the beginning of a resurrection of the Church of Christ in America. And I applaud you as an African-American man, because I know you could be in somebody's palace, but you've, you've chosen the pit of love and we thank God for you. Oh, that's really kind. Thank you so much. You're honoring me. Would you give us just some hope or just a, a final statement to the Church of Jesus Christ as we close out our broadcast today? Yeah, thank you. I just want to say I'm striving to live it and to figure it out. And I'm looking around for examples, but I really you've been so kind to honor me in that way. Yeah, the gospel, there's never... There's never a bad day in the kingdom of God. There's never, we're never hopeless. We need to always remember that kingdom truth is paradoxical. Up is down, down is up. Death is life. Pursuing life is death. None of this works the way that we were taught it should work. Wow. And that's good news. And I think a lot of people get discouraged when they hear that they've got to discard everything and completely start over and all that kind of stuff. But for years now, I have woken up every day thinking I'm starting all, I'm I'm completely starting anew today because I will never in my lifetime, if I lived a hundred years, I could never attain the kind of Bible knowledge that Nicodemus had. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to start over completely. Mm, And so to hear that we need to start over completely means to me tearing down all the ways that we've been taught to avoid receiving the love and the goodness of Jesus because of all the the stuff that we've accumulated and the credentials and the noise. And to go back to basics is to advance to the end. And I think that's where it lies. Paradox. 
Mm. Embrace the cross and receive life. God is good. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Man, powerful. So, Pastor Jeff, we'd have to get part two out of the doc later on in the year. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> my, right. my privilege to talk with you guys. Oh, yeah. thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. We really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm going to take all of the good info that you gave us, put it in the show notes, along with your Faith Improvised website, podcast. Thank you. And all of that. But thank you again for your time. We really appreciate it. Yeah, you're so welcome. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Yes, thank you so much, Doc. Bless you so much and keep up the good work. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope, season three. We are so privileged to be able to do this. We're thankful for the Center for Congregations for funding us. And we'd also appreciate you letting others know about us. So if you'd like us, wherever you get this podcast, subscribe to it if it's something that's been helpful for you. And we will see you again soon. All right, Pastor, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Shades of Hope. We would like to hear from you. Send us your thoughts and questions at Shades of Hope Podcast at gmail.com. That's Shades of Hope Podcast at gmail.com. We would also appreciate it if you could leave us a review and rate us wherever you access this podcast. Thank you again and may God bless you as you follow Jesus and strive to make this world a better place for all of God's children. <laughs>